Hi everyone and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimize are thrilled to host this podcast series where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host, Pat Bradshaw, and today, absolutely delighted to be joined by Graham Miller. So, Graham, thanks very much for coming on. Hi, Pat. Thanks for having me on. No worries at all. No worries at all. We made it at last. I think it's becoming a common theme across the first <laughs> series that from the time we initially planned to record compared to uh, the actual recording is normally months apart. So, uh, so, yeah, no, I appreciate your patience. Yeah, no problem at all. That's a pleasure. No worries, no worries. How is your podcast game? Have you uh, have you done anything like this before, or do you listen to podcasts even? Yeah, I listen to podcasts a lot actually. Um, I've done comparable things in the past, so I've been involved with uh, IRM special interest groups, uh, presented to a couple of those, and um, so that's quite similar. Um, also, used to be a drummer in bands when I was younger, so I did quite a lot of recording and that kind of that, that kind of past life. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think we've spoke when we spoke when we were um, sort of preparing for the episode, we sort of realised we're both uh, keen but potentially unaccomplished uh, musicians. I'm the same. I've played guitar since I was probably about eight or nine or something. It's one of those love-hate relationships, like you say. Sometimes you pick it up every day for six months and then it'll go 12 months without even looking at it. But, um, but well, yeah. this is it, yeah. Well, I've been, I've been drumming since I was six years old, but more recently, kind of guitar and stuff. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. Nice, nice. I honestly don't think I would have uh, made out my parents' house alive if I'd taken up drumming. (laughs) Um, But excellent digress. But uh, like I said, great. Thanks a lot for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. But um, as we always do with these things, I think a really great place to start is um, a little bit of a journey to date, really. So obviously how you got into the profession, a little bit of a introduction to that, a bit of a highlight reel of um, of what you've accomplished and, and obviously your career path over the years and up to the point recording this podcast right now so uh so yeah fire away okay yeah so um well i started off studying law i really enjoyed it i was uh, there weren't many opportunities for traineeships at the time so this was in the kind of aftermath of the financial crisis um and also i didn't want to limit myself to living uh, and practicing law solely in scotland so i started looking around for alternative career paths and something that kept coming up was uh, risk management uh, so I undertook a master's degree in risk management at Glasgow Caledonian University and um, managed to achieve a distinction. Nice. Um, <laughs> cheers. I think that was, <laughs> there was a lot of credit owed to uh, Don Anderson, who was my uh, dissertation tutor at the time. Um, but yeah, really pleased to get that. So started my risk career with Mott McDonald's in London. So that was a pretty big move from Glasgow to London. Um, and I was put on a, a major a portfolio of national grids, uh, high voltage electricity projects. So that was about three and a half billion. Wow. Um, so I started off as a risk analyst, kind of learning the ropes and pretty quickly within about 18 months or so, I graduated through the ranks and became 
they had a risk on that that portfolio. Um, so as part of that role, I did with Mott McDonald some enterprise risk management, some business continuity management, and I also undertook the IRM's international diploma uh, during my time there. Um, and while I was there also, uh, my efforts were rewarded with the, the IRM's Global Newcomer of the Awards. So that was, that was back in 2015. Nice. And, yeah, cheers. It was a, a really good event. Actually, it was Joanna Lumley who presented the awards. It was, yeah, it was a great night. Shout out Joanna if, uh, if, if she's listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I highly doubt it. I doubt it. But yeah, nice, nice to think. Um, so yeah, after I, I left Mott McDonald shortly after that, I started working with Arcadis and got involved with some really interesting projects. So Crossrail 2, HS2, uh, a host of uh, TFL station upgrade projects. Um, and then I became a contractor shortly after that. Well, I would say shortly, maybe three, four years later. Um, and did some kind of independent work. So I was working with Tideway and HS2 as well. So I'm currently the uh, risk lead on the Euston Station project. Um, I became a fellow of the Institute of Risk Management. Um, that was maybe a year or so ago. And I've become heavily involved with the, uh, the risk management special interest group. So um, most involved with the risk complexity special interest group. Um, and over the last 18 months or so, I've pulled together a team of really talented uh, tech guys, uh, software developers, and we're working on building a, a new risk management software. So nice. it's all exciting times. Nice, love that. Yeah, I think um, I think you mentioned a couple of times about the IRM SIG. I think that was actually where we, you actually first came on my radar. I think uh, I sat in on a, a talk that you did that I found really interesting. So when I was sort of looking at people who might be useful to come on, you were sort of right at the top of the list. Um, oh, good. That's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So um, just out of interest in terms of just going back to your law degree, I also did law at uni and I've, I've not made it much of a secret. I think I might have mentioned on previous episodes, actually, that I never wanted to be a lawyer. I got to the end of my A-levels and I guess I was good at business, science, English, and it seemed like a good good degree to do. Um, yeah. Was that Were you in a similar position or I know you obviously risk management came came later and it was sort of potentially stumbled across it what was the plan for yourself Graham was it was law something like a stepping stone similar to me or did you initially plan on on going into that profession well yeah I was really interested in law it was it's a fascinating subject um, yeah so I really enjoyed studying it and I think at the beginning I was all about becoming a lawyer and then as time kind of moved on and I get more uh, I get more of a feel for what the job itself would be like I started to become less and less enchanted by it um, and then yeah the kind of final nail in the coffin was finishing the degree and there not been many uh, traineeships available. And I just thought, I think it's time for a, a change and see what else is out there. Yeah, fair enough. I was the same. Obviously completed the uh, the three years and then you've got to go on and do an LPC, which yeah. um, instead of going directly into that, I went traveling for a couple of years. Um, yeah. I think I've mentioned came back when I, when I sort of landed back on home soil, it was like, um, I don't think, uh, I don't think law is going to be my vocation. Um, and but yeah. Is, yeah, with, with law as well, it's obviously constantly evolving. So exactly. It's, it's not necessarily what's, or, or it's definitely not what's uh, in practice now. Exactly. And, um, and also how have you, how have you sort of found or how have you adapted, I should say, to life down in London as a Glaswegian? Have you, uh, did you struggle at first or is it pretty, uh, did, do, do you yeah. much prefer the big city? 
Oh, I definitely, I definitely prefer it. I mean, it was a, it was a big culture shock, definitely. So the pace of life down here is just chalk and cheese. But um, yeah, I really enjoy it. So I, I kind of miss London when I go back to to Glasgow. I enjoy being there for a few days, seeing everybody. But I start to miss it again. So yeah. it's definitely home now. Love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've sort of got a love hate relationship with London. Apologies to anyone uh, listening who's based on London. I think. Um, I really enjoy it for sort of short stints, but I think being a northerner after a few days, I just find it a little bit too hectic. Like you say, maybe <laughs> I just need, um, maybe I just need to grit and bear it, and I'll uh, and I'll probably be the same. I'd probably love it as well. Excellent. Well, um, digress, but thanks for that, Graham. I really appreciate. It. As I always say, I think it's really interesting to to hear of people's backgrounds and um, and see what their journey's been up to this point. But as everyone will have seen. I'm sure from the title of the episode today, we're going to be talking about risk complexity. So I'm aware as sure of, as, a, as I'm sure most of our listeners are, easy for me to say, that there is some ambiguity when it comes to the differentiating between complex systems and complicated systems. So really looking forward to getting stuck into that today. But out of interest, Graham, why did you opt to, um, to, to choose this topic to discuss? So complexity generally is a, a, a really um a really interesting subject and yeah. i've been i've been interested in it for quite a while so i've read quite a lot of books and, and various different resources listen to podcasts and what have you um so when i noticed there was a risk complexity special interest group uh, for the irm i got involved in that with mike bartlett and others and we, we contributed a chapter on risk complexity for the APM's uh, PRAM guide, which is coming out, I think, later this year. All the, the final uh, chapters have been submitted, as far as I know, so it should be yeah. soon. Um, but yeah, I got into the, the subject of risk complexity, and as part of, as part of that, we, we realised that it's a subject that really has to be promoted in risk management. We really need to start taking account of the complexity of risk and I mean, you've heard of uh, risk when managing silos, and that still goes on. So we need to think about how it connects to other elements within major projects or wider organisations. Love that. Yeah, no, I think, like you say, it's, it's a really pertinent topic to discuss, and and nobody else actually raised it to to discuss. I think there was um, a little bit of competition in the early in the early days for people to be able to talk about risk culture, which I think is always going to be the sort of the, the the hot topic out of the blocks that everyone wants to speak about but um yeah. so yeah when you mentioned risk complexity i was um i was i was really excited to discuss that and interesting you should mention mike as well mike bartlett i've actually spoken to mike previously we were hoping to sort of get him involved in season one but just the way things panned out it's probably looking more to be in a later season but um yeah. but yeah no he, he's um a really great guy and had some really interesting thoughts and for topics as well so so yeah, yeah. Looking forward to that, but cheers, Graeme. So as we say, as we always do um, on, on the podcast, we'll start simple. So would you mind explaining what you mean by complexity? Okay, uh, so complexity can be described as the way that large numbers of individual entities interact with one another um, within a, an individual and single system according to a specific set of rules or general principles. So the dynamics of a complex system generally emerge from the interaction of the entities within it. And because of this, complex systems are not predictable in the same way that simpler systems are. So in terms of a kind of bullet point uh, definition, then it's a system which contains multiple parts, stakeholders and requirements. It possesses a large number of connections and exhibits dynamic interactions between the parts. And it produces behaviour as a result of those interactions, which cannot be explained um, as a simple sum of its parts. 
So that's referred to as emergent behaviour, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. Um, so it's probably useful at this point, actually, to talk about the history and the development of complexity theory. So it all started uh, back in the late 1940s with a guy called Ilya Prigozhin. So he was a chemist, he was working in Brussels, and he was carrying out research into thermodynamics, which is the relationships between heat and other forms of energy. So he went on to win the Nobel Prize for this in 1977. Um, but based on his findings and in an apparent divergence from his usual uh, area of expertise, he wrote a book about traffic management, which is called The Kinetic Theory of Vehicular Traffic. So the shift of focus was because he discovered that it's possible to create order out of chaos. And he wrote a further book uh, by that title to show that his prior findings relate not just to chemical reactions and traffic, but to uh, many different phenomena in the wider world. So this gave rise to the field of study, which is known as complex system science, um, and it emerged as its own discipline around about 50 years ago. Um, and it's applied in a wide variety of areas, uh, ranging from the economy to social political issues and uh, the natural world. So a good example of a complex system that we're all really familiar with by now is pandemic, where complexity theory and modeling has played a key part in its management. So the, the interactions between people are how the disease spreads. So the better you can understand these interactions, the better placed you are to manage the pandemic as a whole. Um, so for our purposes, we'll focus on complex projects, I think. Nice, that's really interesting. Thanks, Graham. And straightforward enough i guess but what do we mean by complexity risk then in the context of risk management okay so simply put it's the type of risk which arises from and is unique to complex systems so when you've got a large volume of unique or dynamic components all interacting with one another in unique and dynamic environments um, it's far more difficult to determine the causes and effects and this is where complexity risk can start to materialize so these complexity risks are more challenging to identify, quantify, model, and manage than the ones you might uh, be familiar with on simpler projects or in simpler systems. And as such, uh, they require a different way of thinking to fully appreciate and manage them. Okay. No, no, that's really interesting. So in terms of obviously understanding complexity, then why is that important in the context of risk management? So it's really important to understand complexity in risk management because the greater the level of complexity, the greater the level of uncertainty and therefore risk. Um, yeah. Effectively, if you have more factors at play, you've got more ways in which things can go wrong. And because of this, uh, when you're dealing with a complex system, you need to put additional controls in place. Um, so this is so as you can get a handle on the, the size and the nature of the problem that you're dealing with and also to target your efforts in the right direction. So if you don't understand the extent and the structure of your risk profile, you're less likely to know where your key sources of risk are, um, and you could find yourself constantly firefighting with impacts. So of course, the, the consequence of that is that you're hemorrhaging resources in terms of time and money. Yeah, no, of course. So in terms of actually not looking at risk management, then we obviously touch on that in a second. In terms of factors you would need to consider when identifying complex systems and projects, what, what sort of factors would you need to consider? Okay, so first of all, you need to establish 
uh, which of your projects have inherent complexity. So if you're on a, a portfolio of projects, you need to identify the ones that are most complex <clears throat> and then gain an understanding as to the levels of complexity that are, that are present there. So it's useful to consider projects as being on a continuum uh, ranging from highly predictable to highly unpredictable. This helps to distinguish between complicated and complex projects, identify potential risks and select the most appropriate leadership style and control framework uh, for delivering the project. So there are some really simple tried and tested techniques that you can use to establish what type of project you're working on before you start to identify, assess, analyze and develop appropriate strategies. One that you're probably familiar with is the, the pestle technique. So that's political, economic, social, technological, environmental and legal factors. Yes. So these are all categories that you can brainstorm within and consider and you're, you're getting a pretty broad net when you look at those. Then you've got SWOT analysis. So again, a really familiar one, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. <clears throat> but uh, I think my favourite in this kind of uh, field is Eddie Obeng's four types of project. So dead simple approach, four different types of project as, as the name suggests. The first of which is painting by numbers. So this is where the project and its stakeholders know what needs to be done and uh, how it's to be delivered. So the, the level of uncertainty there is low. Risks are really easy to identify and they're all within manageable limits. So the next one then would be uh, going on a quest. And this is where the project and its stakeholders know what needs to be delivered, but they're unsure as to how to deliver it. Um, so this type of project requires some more exploration uh, of the way to achieve your project's objectives. And the next one is making a movie. So that's where the project and its stakeholders know how to deliver the project, but are unsure of what needs to be delivered. So this type of uh, project requires analysis and uh, more definition of requirements. And then the final one, which is the most aligned to our definition of complexity is uh, walking in fog. So this is where the project and its stakeholders know what uh, know that the project is necessary, but they don't know how to scope it or how to deliver it. And this is most likely to exhibit the characteristics of complexity, as I say, and therefore require additional measures to, uh, to manage the associated risk. So by establishing where the complexity resides in your project, you're much better placed to start identifying the risks. No, that's really interesting. Um, what did you say that, that gent's name was? Sorry, Graham. Was it Eddie Obeng? Sorry. Uh, Eddie Obeng, yes. Eddie Obeng. Oh, interesting. I've not, I've not come across that before. I'll, I'll put it in the podcast notes for anybody. Um... Yeah, I hadn't heard of it before <laughs> kind of doing this research either. Um, but yeah, it's been around for a while. I think it was the kind of mid-90s that he came up with this approach. But yeah, definitely really useful. Interesting. No, I love that. Love that. Thanks, Graham. So in terms of obviously assessing and analyzing and responding to complexity risks, both threats and opportunities, how would you then go about that? Is it a similar process that we're used to or, or is it slightly different? So, yeah, we use the same general broad strokes, um, but we're enhancing the processes. So as I mentioned, I recently worked with Mike Bartlett to contribute a chapter to the upcoming APM Pram Guide on risk complexity. And in the chapter, we define key areas for consideration in the identification of complex uh, risks and provide a list of questions to be considered in each area. So these are volume, uniqueness of components, uniqueness of environment, novelty of projects, team capacity, capability, 
and stakeholders. So we include some really easy questions to get you started in identifying complexity risks on your project. So that's the identify component of it. So when you're assessing complexity risks, you need to be especially mindful of human factors. So the way that people interact with each other and with the systems around them. The questions that you want to consider are what judgments are they making and how reliable are they? So what access to information do they have? What cognitive limitations are there? Um, and what timeframes for making decisions are in place? Then you want to consider what factors are influencing the decisions. So consider the uh, unconscious biases that we're familiar with. So optimism bias, confirmation bias, and anchoring. How do we apply more rigor to the process? So highlighting key areas where human subjectivity and analyzing human judgment can help to increase confidence in the assessments and create more uniformity um, as to the, the assessments that you're, you're landing on. Great stuff. Cheers, Graeme. So as I alluded to earlier in the episode, I think there is some ambiguity when it comes to differentiating between complex and complicated systems, for example. So could you please walk us through these characteristics and, and how they differ? Yeah, there's definitely a bit of confusion around the terms. I mean, they're new, new terms and um, some, of the, some of the sources are actually kind of contradictory as well. So I'll do my best. A simple uh, system or project is characterized by stability and there are clear cause and effect relationships there. So they're largely predictable and controllable as a result. And they've most likely been delivered many times before, and there's, there's really well-established best practice. So whilst there will always be variation in delivering a project, it's usually within parameters that are easily foreseen and managed. So if you think of a family home construction project, they've been delivered a million times before. It's an experienced contracting firm, and they know everything they're likely to encounter. So if anything does kind of come out of the blue, it's usually manageable. So that's a simple project. Talking about a complicated project next then. So there are three components of a complicated system or project that they are designed, predicted, and controllable. So if you think of a jet engine as an example, there are many different parts interacting with one another and working together. But a jet engine is designed, the outputs are consistent, and they're always predictable. Um, or you would hope at least, and the, the system can therefore be controlled. That's not the case with a complex system or project. So these are systems which evolve and are characterized by multiple connections between entities with a degree of interdependency. So these give rise to unforeseen emergent behavior and feedback loops. And whilst these systems are ultimately tractable through structured analysis, they can quickly spiral out of control if if the complexity isn't fully recognized and addressed proportionately. Yeah. So I'll give a little bit of an explanation then. I mentioned a couple of terms there, uh, emergent behavior and feedback loops. So emergent behavior, this is where interacting interdependent entities in a complex system create new order or new structure or, or, or a new way of working. Uh, so they adapt and they react to change in circumstances in order to survive and are therefore creating continually new normals. So if you think about developing a new car, there, there are unknown qualities about that, uh, which can't be addressed until you've reached a certain point in the project. So if you think of the comfort of the ride, for example, you're not yeah. gonna know that with any great degree of certainty until you've actually test driven one of the cars. So then you've got feedback loops. Um, there are two different types of feedback loop. You've got positive and negative. 
So looking at positive first, if you think about a network of people, um, if person A starts a rumour and tells person B, who then goes on to tell person C and person D, and then it comes back around to person A, that will confirm to an extent to person A that the rumour was true, when in fact the rumour was false. So that's, that's a positive feedback loop example. Um, an example of a negative feedback loop uh, is a central heating system. So the temperature will drop below the accepted or the, the desired temperature. And when this is fed back to the system, an action is taken to re-establish the right temperature. So you can imagine then in a complex project, if these loops of information are continuously happening and generating new norms, then it can create a very, very complex infrastructure that, that has to be managed. So that's complex systems. If we move on to chaotic systems now, so these are projects where the relationships between cause and effect are impossible to determine. And this is because they shift continuously and there aren't any identifiable patterns. So the only constant in a chaotic system really is change itself. Uh, a fundamental aspect of these projects is the inherent unknowable and therefore unmanageable nature of them. Um, and current analytical techniques aren't sophisticated enough yet to, to fully appreciate chaotic systems. So the main determinant chaos system is sensitivity to initial conditions. So a really good example that people will be familiar with, I'm sure, is that of the mathematician and meteorologist Edward Lorenz, and that's the, the butterfly effect. Um, so interestingly, it was when he first posited the idea, it was the seagull effect, but I think somebody gave him some advice that butterfly effects a little bit more poetic, so I think he ran with that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah, I'll definitely is. So the idea is that a butterfly flapping its wings in one place could ultimately lead to a tornado somewhere else. And this is a, a great example of changing initial conditions resulting in uh, different outcomes. So if you think again of uh, another example, uh, if you roll a couple of dice and you've, you've got a double six position, it's likely to give you a, a different outcome than if you roll the, the dice from, from a double three position. So slight changes, very slight changes in some cases can cascade and snowball into catastrophic events. And that's where you really need to be mindful and, and make sure that you've bolstered your, uh, your risk management processes to, to deal with it. Amazing. No, that's that's really interesting. Thanks, Graeme. So just a question that I've noted down on obviously some of the things you've mentioned earlier. So just touching back on simple, complicated, complex and chaotic systems then. So does the process in selecting a suitable option under the NEC suite correlate in any way to how the complexity of your system is identified or vice versa? So for example, option A, where there's a great deal of, um, I beg your pardon, there's a great degree of confidence in the scope would arguably be highly predictable or simple in inverted commas versus an option C where the scope isn't as clearly defined. So it's complicated or complex. Hopefully that, that question makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, there's definitely, um, there's definitely value in using your assessment of complexity in your selection of the contract that's most appropriate for the project. So if you've already done what we've, we've talked about in uh, using uh, Obeng's four types of project, for example, you, you've got an understanding of the levels of complexity that you're dealing with, and then you're in a much better position to select the appropriate contract type. Excellent. So that leads us on nicely to analysing complexity risk. 
Yeah, um, so the study of complexity has developed hand in hand with the increase in computer power. So it means then that we're more able now to map complex systems and model the associated risk and generate meaningful results. So the key to understanding this is the location and uh, the nature of connections between risks and other modeled entities. So if you think about a pandemic again, the disease thrives through the connections between people. Um, but these connections aren't necessarily all the same and some are potentially bi-directional. So this is vital to recognise, uh, especially given that standard project risk management tools only consider simple linear interactions. So often the logic entered into a scheduled uh, risk analysis tool is the absolute minimum, minimum to uh, generate a, a critical path. Risks are generally considered as discrete events and unrelated to other risks. Uh, so causes and consequences are difficult to model and current risk analysis tools don't really appreciate the potential for more than one cause and uh, more than one consequence. So then the advice is as a minimum if you're trying to model complexity you need to take account of correlation between complexity risks. So correlation it can be described as the relationship between two or more variables um, and this can be broken down into two types. So the existence of risk that's where if a risk occurs or changes in likelihood, then another related risk might uh, be more likely to occur or change in likelihood. And then the second, the impact of risks. And this is where the impact of one risk is related to the impact of another. Once you've identified all your complexity risks and you've, you've assessed them uh, sufficiently, you want to develop mitigation strategies. So this is where we get to the, the response uh, phase. So the management of complexity risk requires the additional measures outlined uh, previously to ensure that it's fully appreciated and adequately controlled. So in addition to the enhanced modeling techniques that we've already talked about, the response to complexity risk needs to enhance traditional risk management techniques. And this is to recognize that solutions need to take account of risk cultures, of human behavior, and of identified trends. So as part of any risk management framework that's designed to, to take account of complexity risk, any risks which are identified, uh, which stem specifically from complexity, should be emphasized in risk reporting. It should be recognized that the effects of complexity risk are likely to be greater than any single party's accountability or liability. So a collaborative risk management response is required. So we're talking there about contractual liability for risks, when you look at the complexity and the interdependency of risks, that uh, line between contractor and client, for example, is often blurred. So look out for early warning signs for the commencement of any ripple effects that should be, estab or, uh, should be established with proactive and reactive response actions defined in advance. And a final point then, the primary purpose of managing complexity risk is to avoid the project moving into a crisis phase. So whilst we want to avoid that as far as possible, risk management techniques used in crisis management can be really valuable in uh, managing complexity risk. So as you may imagine, there are different managerial responses required depending on whether you're looking at risk on a simple project, a complex project, or a chaotic uh, systems or projects. So with a simple project, it's pretty straightforward. You've done these types of projects before. So you've got access to fact-based management techniques. You can use real data, live data in some instances. 
Uh, there's well-established best practice, so you, you just need to make sure that that's in place and you shouldn't go too far wrong. You can delegate authority um, without too much uh, complication. And uh, you're able to communicate clearly in direct ways. So keeping it simple is the key uh, on a simple project. When you get into complex projects, you want to create focus groups. Um, so listen to conflicting advice and assess each response uniformly. Make sure that you're considering the sources of your information before acting upon it. So you want to cultivate creative environments and carry out experiments which allow patterns to emerge. Use methods that can help generate ideas and ensure that all ideas are captured so as you can cherry pick the best and uh, help them drive your project forward. Okay, so then we move on to chaotic systems or projects. So when managing risk in a chaotic system or project, you want to record and repeat approaches that work. Uh, take immediate action to re-establish order <clears throat> after a significant change has happened. So as we spoke about earlier, uh, establishing a new normal. Provide clear, direct communication. So if you think uh, crisis communication, there's a lot of crossover between managing risk in a chaotic environment and uh, managing risk in a crisis. A useful technique to use is to compartmentalize and split off chaotic uh, components from the main project. Yeah. So if you're dealing with a, a complex project, but there's a chaotic element to it, if you box that off and deal with it separately, you can contain that to a large extent. So if you think, for example, then of trying out a new technology or technique, you might not want that impacting on the, the wider project if it doesn't go entirely to plan. Brilliant. Thanks so much for that, Graham. So as a final point, just to wrap things up then, I guess, what's next when it comes to tackling risk complexity? So where are we currently and, and how do you see techniques and tools improving in the profession moving forward? So as part of the Pram Guide chapter uh, that I spoke about earlier, we carried out an assessment of the tools available to manage risk on complex projects. It became apparent that uh, current risk analysis tools fall short of the standard that's going to be required. Uh, so there's therefore a, an imminent need for more sophisticated tools and techniques to ensure that complexity is fully appreciated and that it's adequately managed. Excellent. Thanks so much for that, Graham. I really appreciate it. And um, and I've really enjoyed this topic. Like I say, I think it's something that is extremely pertinent and, and to have somebody come on who's as, as passionate about it as you is, uh, is brilliant. So thank you for that. But excellent. Just as I always do, and as a bit of a tradition on the uh, on the Riskologist podcast, um, if you could give yourself a piece of advice that you know now that you didn't know at the start of your career, what would that piece of advice be? Probably just a simple thing. So it's proved itself time and again that half the battle of tackling something big is to be organised. So if you approach it in a methodical, logical way, um, develop a process, and everything will become much easier. So it's like the the old uh, expression, how do you eat an elephant one mouthful at a time? Yeah, I think that proves itself over and over. Not yes. that I'm of elephants. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's so interesting. Um, I know in I know that that sort of old adage is um is just a bit playful at the end, but the amount of guests I've had on the podcast who have said everything in bite-sized chunks, everything, like you say, one mouthful at a time. Oh, really? and yeah, my mentor, Paul Sutcliffe, is um, probably, he uses the phrase constantly with me, just yeah. get, make, getting things down, breaking things down into bite-sized chunks. So, no, I think uh, I think a lot of people share that uh, that piece of wisdom with you. Um, but, no, that's brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, Graeme. Um, and then last point. So, in terms of 
getting in touch. So if anybody's listening today and, and would like to get in touch with you to sort of pick your brains on anything risk complexity or any of the points you've made in the podcast, what would be the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, I think uh, through LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, so yeah, I would welcome any anybody getting in touch, definitely. Great stuff. No problem. I'll um, I'll certainly put a link to Graham's LinkedIn profile in the podcast notes if anybody uh, wants to go directly through to that. But lastly, Graham, I know it's something that you mentioned quite early on in the podcast um, that you've been working on some interesting things behind the scenes and extracurricular. So uh, did you want to give us a little bit of an insight on that briefly? Yeah, that's right. It's pretty exciting, actually. So I've pulled together a team of really talented software developers and we're building a next generation risk management software solution, which takes account of complexity, interdependency, the subjectivity of risk. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're progressing through the build schedule at pace now and we'll be presenting it to the, the risk community really soon. Amazing. Amazing. Excited to see that, as I'm sure everybody else is. But, um, but like I said, Graham, really do appreciate you coming on today. mate. It's um, been a long time coming, but we got there in the end. But uh, like yeah, I said, yeah. thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Pat. No worries, Graham. Thanks, mate. Take it easy. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimize on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time where we'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.